Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Muriel Fox. Muriel is the co-founder of the National Organization for Women, where she led their public relations initiatives. She also served as the operations lieutenant to President Betty Friedan. Muriel is one of the pioneers of the women's movement and was instrumental in convincing President Lyndon Johnson to issue an executive order prohibiting employment discrimination on the basis of sex. Muriel, it's a great honor to have you with us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Muriel, I'd like to start these interviews first by asking our guests to tell us about their early life, their upbringing, where were you raised and where did you go to school and the like? I grew up in North New Jersey. In the, I graduated from Wequiak High School two years before Philip Roth, who made Wequiak High School famous. And then uh, uh, just before I graduated, my, my brother had rheumatic fever for the third time, and my family moved to Miami Beach. So I graduated from Wequiak, and uh, then I went to Rollins College for two years, and then graduated from Barnard College. Uh, summa cum laude, I'm proud to say. And then I entered the uh, business world, the working world of New York City. So you said of your mom once that you were the daughter of a grocer and a housewife, your father and your and your mother. And you said of your mother that my mother never had an opportunity to fulfill herself. She was a very unhappy person. In those days, Half the population was required to take one occupation, housewife. She was terrible at it, and I was determined I wasn't going to live that life. So can you talk a little bit about that, please? Absolutely. I I think the reason that I was so passionate, I am so passionate about the women's movement, is because I think of women like my mother, whose lives were really a failure. I mean, she could have done anything anything except the one job that was open to her, which was housewife. And and she was terrible at it. She hated it. She made us miserable. Uh, and it's it's so sad. And uh, I'm just so happy for women today who have their choice of so many occupations and uh, lives, lifestyles. And uh, when, when I marched in 1980, uh, for the Equal Rights Amendment, just after my mother had died. It was on Mother's Day when I marched with Now, and I said I was dedicating the march to my mother and uh, to all the women for whom we were marching. Mm. You said that you graduate summa cum laude from uh, Barnard College. You were active in the radio station there, and I take it because you were summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa type of student, that the counseling center at Barnard had big ideas for you to become a professional, right? No, they told me I was should be a secretary, that that was all that was open to us. And uh, I I wanted to be a newspaper reporter. So when I graduated from, from Barnard, uh, I started looking around. And I had actually had an opportunity at Rollins uh, because we had a, a conference on world government and the atom bomb, and the United Press reporter, then it was United Press rather than UPI, had to leave. And so I was recommended, so I became the reporter, the stringer, 
for United Press, and of course I love that job and considered myself a, a newspaper reporter, but then all the newspapers were folding all around the country. One by one, they were just dropping by the wayside. So uh, that's when I discovered I had to go into public relations. And uh, then when I, uh, I, I, then my mother was ill, so I moved to Florida for a, a, a year. And uh, then when I was ready to come back to New York, I had a scrapbook and a very good recommendation to the executive vice president of the world's largest public relations agency, Carl Beyer and Associates. And he said, well, your resume is very impressive, but we don't hire women writers. And so I went away and accepted that, got a job with a small public relations job. And then uh, about a month or so later, someone said, there's an opening at Carl Beyer in the radio and television department. I said, well, Beyer doesn't hire women. He said, well, go try. See, Bob Davis, he's the head of the department. He's a nice guy. And I saw him and got the job. But it wasn't clear sailing, was it? That you encountered not long into your career at Bayer that not only was there at first a bar to entrance, but there was a glass ceiling once you were already within. Yes? There was a glass ceiling for every woman everywhere. And yet I moved quite fast. And uh, I, I became ahead of the department when my boss moved up. And actually, there was a man earning more money than I was who could have gotten the job, but they felt I worked harder and, and would be a better fit. So I became head of the department. And uh, I remember the head of buyer at that time said, well, you've come along very fast, Muriel. You do a good job, but we'll see if you've come along too fast. Uh, then uh, a few years later, when I became buyer's youngest vice president, uh, the head of the, of the agency said, well, Muriel, we're, we're proud of you. You've done a good job, but you've gone as far as you can go because CEOs cannot take advice from a woman. And, and, and all this time, we, we accepted this. Uh, you know, we didn't think we were going to fight for it. There wasn't a movement at the time. And this is what we uh, went home with. I knew that the men were all making more money than I was. And um, I accepted that. So it really took the women's movement uh, to move me ahead. And I'm proud of that. Yeah, and we'll turn to that in a minute. But before we do, I'd like you to tell us who is Shepard Aronson. Well, that was Dr. Shepard Aronson, my husband. And we were married for 48 years, blissfully. Uh, we, we didn't have one fight in 48 years. We really were very well suited. And he became the first uh, chair of the board of New York Now when we founded Now. And uh, when we went down for Now's founding conference, he took care of the kids that weekend. We all came down, but he took them to the Wax Museum, etc. And... Uh, when we were at cocktail parties and uh, people would say, Shep, you know, what are you doing in the women's movement? Uh, he, he'd say, I want my wife to make more money. <laughs> he had a good sense of humor, too. And, uh, but but he, he also had a lot of trouble in the women's movement. Those, you know, I think every organization where, where people are passionate 
there's a lot of fights. And there were a lot of battles in our movement, just like every other movement. And uh, so he said that was the worst year of his life. Uh, he wasn't really used to all the battles. Of course, they accused him of male chauvinism. Um, but he, he was in there working for us from the beginning. I think your generation, and I think that the women who succeeded, like yourself, like my mom, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the like, all seem to have in common a supportive husband. That this was, if they were married, that without, you called your husband a feminist, and I would say the same of my dad. Without that, it was doubly difficult, if not impossible. So a lot of women today, even who are successful, have the opposite. They have no husband, no children, no responsibilities at home. And and that's another way to success. But um, there are a lot of women in our movement who had a husband who, who fought them, who resented them. A lot of women had a lie about going to the now meetings. Uh, their husband wouldn't approve of it. And uh, some of them, actually, their marriages broke apart when the women's movement um, created demands that their husbands wouldn't permit. So I'd like to turn to 1963. We're not now f- is founded in 66, but in 1963, you invite Betty Friedan to speak about her new book, The Feminine Mystique, to an organization for women in the media. So can you tell us about that initial meeting with Betty Friedan, the impact of the feminine mystique, and what happened in terms of your following Betty Friedan? Well, before the meeting, we we talked about uh, discrimination, and I said, well, we've got to have an organization that's going to fight for women. And Betty Friedan said, you mean an NAACP for women? I said, yes. She said, well, we, we do. I'm not, I'm not an organization person, but we, we do need it. And so uh, after her speech, which was stirring, um, I sent her a thank you note and said, if ever you want to found an organization to work for women, I'll help with the public relations. So in 1966, I was on Betty Friedan's Rolodex, one of, I'm sure, hundreds of people that she contacted. And... Uh, I said, yes, of course, when she, they had just founded this organization called Now that summer. And uh, I said, of course, I'll join. Send me 200 applications. I'll send them to all my friends in radio and television. And uh, that's when she asked me to head up the public relations uh, for Now. She invited me to her apartment in the Dakota uh, apartment building. And um, I said, no, I've got a husband, I've got two children, I've got a very demanding job, but I'll help as much as I can. And of course, like the rest of us, we all did everything we could for this movement because we believed in it. The movement has its initial meeting in the Washington Post, basement of the Washington Post building. And one of the things that came out of it which I thought was a, a seminal document, one of the more important documents in the founding of the women's movement, sort of like Seneca Falls or something a generation later. And that was the statement of purpose. And can you talk, I have it here. I'll read a little bit of it. It says the purpose of the national organization of women now 
is to take action to bring women into full participation in the mainstream of American society, exercising all the privileges and responsibilities thereof in truly equal partnership with men. Now is dedicated to the proposition that women, first and foremost, are human beings who, like all other people in society, must have the chance to develop their fullest human potential. It's quite a statement. Can you talk a little bit about it and how it came to pass and what you consider its importance to be? Yes, that, that was, you're right. It was such a beautiful document, a, a great document. Uh, I think it should be right up there with the Communist Manifesto and, and other great documents that changed the world. It, it was almost entirely written by Betty Friedan with some input from a wonderful black attorney, Pauli Murray, a, a great uh, feminist uh, and uh, humanitarian, and uh, also a, a lawyer named Mary Eastwood. The two of them helped Betty Friedan, but it was mostly Betty Friedan's, not only her beautiful language, but also her ideas. That statement of purpose covered everything. It's still absolutely true today. Everything we're working for, every injustice, every remedy that we were seeking, and uh, you just go by it one by one, and uh, you have to believe that we have a future. Well, it's so interesting because when I read it, I thought to myself, before starting to read it, well, this will be an interesting historical document. And then I read it and I thought, my goodness, if someone told me, read this, I just wrote it an hour ago, I'd say it's spot on with the conditions in which we find ourselves. So here's a document from 66 that says, sadly, in some sense, but is as true today as it was when written, not only just the aspirational stuff, but equal pay issues, fair housing Religion, justice, yes. politics, and education, it named them all. And, and choice. And if people can find this, they go on the, the, the NOW website, and uh, the statement of purpose is there. Now, you said that you wanted to join NOW, or become a co-founder, as you were, of NOW, because you were angry, and you wanted to make history. So talk a little bit about your intentions in joining now. Because, I mean, you had a great job. You could have just been a PR professional and, you know, done that. But but you, because you were angry and wanted to make history, you did both of them. You did do that. Well, all of us who were active in the early days of now had also been active in the civil rights movement. And uh, we were angry about those injustices against minorities and so we, we truly believed in this and we thought well we've got to include women and uh, the, the, the civil rights movement welcomed us and as the statement of purpose says all human rights are indivisible we're working for all civil rights so we were angry and uh, also I knew everyone knew we were making history we had no doubt that we were going to succeed. The, the expression we all used was long overdue. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's why we succeeded. And the other reason we succeeded was just tens of thousands of women and men who just sacrificed everything, who worked so hard 
to make it a success. And, and even above and beyond the, the leaders like Betty Friedan was the, the people who threw themselves into it. And uh, each one of them was a leader in some way, maybe in their school, in their city, in their labor union, uh, in their church, whatever it took, whatever made them mad, uh, that's what they worked to change. It must have been interesting to be there at the stand-up of a movement, of a, a revolution of some sort, and be in charge of messaging. Because how you position yourself as a new entrant into the, the body politic is complicated. And if you get it wrong, it could set you back permanently. So could you talk a little bit about what this communication strategy was as you guys were launching now and introducing yourself to the world at large? I think, first of all, we wanted acceptance. And and we were professionals. Every, everyone uh, who was on the board of now was, was a professional uh, in, in some way, and really experienced in his or her field. And uh, so we wanted people to know we knew what we were doing. And then, frankly, we just gave them the facts. And and just as with the feminine mystique, women would say, it changed my life. I, I recognize what you were saying, Betty Friedan. The same thing was true with the women's movement. I recognize what you were saying now. And uh, just give them the facts. And uh, they joined. And they worked. And they sacrificed. And uh, th- that was how we succeeded. And mass marching was an important component, visibility on our TV screens and in our newspapers to let people know who you were and the seriousness of your purpose. Yes? You're right. And I think now uh, sort of initiated these many, many marches more than any other organization. And uh, each time we brought new new members and, and new followers, and of course, the big march that really changed everything was uh, August 26, 1970, the, the big march uh, for women's rights, which was Betty Friedan's idea. That was the anniversary of women getting the vote, August 26. And we had marches around the whole country and, and thousands and thousands of people, women and men joined. And that was from that time on, we were a movement. There's a, a wonderful picture of you, is there not, leading a parade and a banner behind you, dressed in white, carrying, is it the now flag that you're carrying with you? That's right. I was not only carrying the now flag, and but I was wearing a, a long white dress, which the suffragists used to wear white, and so we wore white too. And uh, that was my daughter's graduation dress. And the, the New York Historical Society is still exhibiting it as uh, an example of, of what we were all about. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the luminaries, including yourself, of course, of now. And I heard you in an interview say once of Betty Friedan that she was, quote, an impossible human being. She was not a good woman, but she was a great woman. So can you talk a little bit about Betty Friedan and 
her style and the right. way. I hope that young people today and all people will understand that Betty Friedan changed the world for half of our population throughout the whole world. And, and Betty is the one who did it. She, she was, she was not a, a, a nice person in many ways. She was very cranky, drove us all crazy, but she was a visionary. She was brilliant. She was, she was the one who developed our strategy, that wonderful statement of purpose. She developed, she had our energy. Uh, she just would go around giving speeches and then people would come up to her and say, she, Betty would say, don't thank me, just start a now chapter here. And uh, we owe everything to Betty for that. And I hope that history will remember that. Uh, I, I, I was proud to be the first speaker at Betty Friedan's funeral. And I said um, that she was not only the greatest woman of the 20th century, but I believe Betty Friedan was the greatest woman of the second millennium because she changed the world for women. What about Gloria Steinem? You said of Gloria that she, in contrast to Betty, was a very good Person. So tell us about her and working with her and the role she played. Gloria Steinem, I'm happy to put it in the present tense that she's still alive. She's still making history and she is a beautiful human being, sacrificing, uh, kindly, generous. And uh, we're all very proud to have her in the movement. And in some ways, she was really the uh, the face of the woman's movement when she came along and, and she helped to make many friends. And, and she still does. Sort of a counterweight to Betty, in a way, who could cause you to lose friends. <laughs> as, as far as friendships go, yes. But they, they each played their role. The, the one who I was very fond of growing up and my family and her family used to interact periodically. And that was Bella Abzug. And tell us about uh, Bella and maybe Bella and Shirley Chisholm, because they both came to Congress and were very important historical figures. Right. Well, Bella Abzug uh, had, uh, was an early Congresswoman and she, she made laws. She certainly made waves. And uh, she was greatly admired. She, she was what people would call a, an uppity female or pushy dame. And, and luckily, she was pushy, and, and she got results for her. She also came from a very happy marriage. And uh, I know her husband would, uh, helped her along also. Shirley Chisholm was was also uh, she was in our, in our early now chapter in, in New York State at the beginning it was a chapter for New York State rather than New York City and she was the first black congresswoman and uh, she did us all proud and then I remember when when Shirley decided to run for president in 1968 uh, there was a lot of ridicule a lot of objection, but, but she was inspiring. And uh, I know Betty Friedan worked very hard uh, for Shirley Chisholm's candidacy. Yeah, her presidential candidacy was an important first step. 
So I don't want to leave you anytime soon. And one of the things I want to make sure we cover off is some of the most crucial early battles of now, which you were a part of. Maybe we can start first and probably have perhaps most importantly with Executive Order 11246. So can you tell us about what that is and how it came to pass that you were involved in it? I'm very proud of, I think that was my, my most important achievement because I wrote the letter on behalf of uh, now to President Lyndon Johnson, urging him to include women in affirmative action because at that time, affirmative action uh, was only a matter of race, national origin, and religion. And we said, you must include uh, gender. And uh, we, we met at the White House with John Macy, who was President Johnson's uh, human relations advisor. And he said, well, we, don't you want to be treated differently from the rest of the civil rights movement? We said, no, it's, we're part of the civil rights movement. And then in October of 1967, I'm very proud that President Johnson signed Executive Order 11246, which created affirmative action for women as well as for all other victims of discrimination. And that opened up the pipeline for millions of women. And they, they moved from low positions to higher positions to even higher positions and that is the reason uh, we have women today helping to run the world. And thankfully so. There are a couple of other battles. When I went back and started doing research, I was shocked in a sense of how modern the fights were for certain things. So what I mean by that is let's talk about the Oak Room at the Plaza. And we're in 1969. That's what I'm saying when I say more modern. This is like not 1948. This is 1969. And tell us about Now's strike at the Plaza Hotel's Oak Room. Well, that was my idea, too. Uh, and it happened because um, I had to, had my secretary make a date for me and uh, a client and uh, an Associated Press editor at the Oak Room, and uh, they made the date, and then I showed up with my client and the Associated Press editor, and the Metro D said, I'm sorry, we can't let you in. We don't admit women for lunch. And so we, we went somewhere else very quietly, and then I went back to now and said, we've got to pick at the Oak Room. So on Lincoln's birthday, February 12th, 1969, now let a picketing of the Oak Room, and uh, Gloria Stein was covering it as a reporter, and uh, it was successful. We had to keep keep working, and I remember that Eleanor Holmes Norton, who was head of the New York City, uh, the uh, predecessor to the EEOC, the Human Rights Commission, she said, we, we have to prohibit discrimination um, uh, in public accommodations. And so I remember the first day that the Oak Room opened, I went with my brother, who incidentally was a vice president of Mao. He was a lawyer for now, uh, helped with Mao. And we went there and we had lunch. And there was 
No fuss at all. There was no problem. The world didn't end. Uh, and uh, that was the beginning of our fight for public accommodations, what we called Title II of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Another legendary battle, which I'd like you to talk a little bit about, which I just didn't remember, although I should have because I'm old enough to remember, and that's the notion of segregated help-want ads in the newspapers. Can you talk about that and the struggles to change that? Yes, that was an early battle for now. And today's women cannot believe that the newspapers used to say, uh, help wanted male, help wanted female. They just can't believe it. Uh, but uh, there it was. And uh, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, was supposed to enforce the, the law prohibiting discrimination, but they really looked the other way because they were more interested in other aspects of civil rights. So we had a picket. We had to uh, have lawsuits. We had a march for equal rights. We had a, we met with the New York Times and all the other newspapers, and uh, it took us several years. But finally, I remember in 1968, December, I still have the newspaper, um, and there were the help wanted ads saying, help wanted male and female. And we had been having a lot of battles in New York now at that time and saying, oh, is it worth it? But when that came out, we all said, yes, it was worth it. Another battle that was worth it involved the Equal Credit Act, which is something I didn't realize about women and credit cards. So can you talk about that, too, and the struggles around it? Yes. The the thing is that in the early days, now had to get all these new laws passed. And, And the Fair Credit Act was a very important law that we got passed. And then, of course, we had to get the laws enforced. Uh, and it's very true that the, the banks could say, we don't give credit cards to women. Uh, we can give it to their husbands, and you can get a credit card in your husband's name, but you can't get your own. And then if there's a divorce or your husband dies, you lose your credit card. And also banks would... Uh, count a woman's salary in deciding whether to give a mortgage. Only the, the husband's uh, salary counted. So it took the Fair Credit Act to, to change this. This was true of everything. And in those days, it was just taken for granted. Oh, this is the way it's always been. Until now, got the laws changed, and then we had to get the laws enforced. Similarly, with the Fair Housing Act. Back in the day, what was allowed with respect to discrimination in the rental of properties? You're absolutely right. A landlord could say, I don't rent to women. Uh, I mean, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? But that that was very uh, common. And this was all very blatant. They could say this until it became illegal. And the Fair Housing Act made it illegal. And this was, again, not the 1940s. We're talking... The 19, late 1960s? 1970s was when we got these laws. 1970s. Oh, yeah, no. decade. Exactly, yeah. The last sort of, uh, well, there are a couple of things I want to talk about. But one last struggle which made me smile um, was your 1972 meeting with the 
producers at Sesame Street. Yes, well, Sesame Street was a client of my agency. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I had a role in, in getting the, uh, the account for buyer. But I, I was not the uh, supervisor of the account because, frankly, uh, John Gans Cooney was the great innovator of Sesame Street. Uh, felt, well, we can't have two women up there. But anyway, she did a great job with Sesame Street. But uh, the people who initiated Sesame Street, frankly, were more interested in uh, helping the, the young black children and giving them role models. So the, the first woman on Sesame Street, Susan, was very much a typical housewife, baking cookies. And uh, they didn't have any female role models at all. All the Muppets were male. And uh, they, they didn't even think this was important at that time. They had other goals. So uh, now uh, decided... <laughs> The New York City chapter have now decided they were going to um, boycott, organize a boycott of Sesame Street. And I, 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 uh, I saw the, the now memo and I went to the account executive on Sesame Street and said, you've got to do something quickly. Sesame Street has to change its ways. And so we arranged for a meeting between the, the leaders of Sesame Street and uh, the leaders of now. And, they, and the now people pointed out all the ways in which they were discriminating against women. And, uh, and, and the people on Sesame Street listened. And then uh, I helped to uh, arrange for them to uh, get together on an agreement so that there was never a boycott. Instead, Sesame Street learned the lesson, and introduced uh, female characters who, who have been very inspiring through the years. And this happened again and again. Very often, other clients, you know, would realize that they, AT&T, at, at our fundraising big dinner, the CEO of AT&T, thanked now for uh, the lawsuit that made AT&T change and admit women and have affirmative action for women. He said it's the best thing that ever happened to AT&T. Now we have all these wonderful women contributing to our success. I read recently that the state of Virginia ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. Now the, the deadline has long passed, but for the first time when Virginia had a Democratic legislature, they passed the Equal Rights Amendment, which made it the 38th state. And there's going to be lots of lawsuits about whether the archivists should determine that this Equal Rights Amendment is now law. You've got four states who are trying to rescind their ratification. And so all this is going to play out now. But you were there in the beginning of the ERA Movement, And so can you talk a little bit about it and how it sort of sailed through Congress and how it got bogged down and the like? Well, I must say uh, it did sail through Congress and we thought we were going to get all the states we needed to ratify it. Uh, then we ran into a, a very well-financed 
a movement. It, it wasn't just a group of housewives who fought against us. They were financed by the insurance movement and by other agencies that, uh, that, that felt it would not be in their financial interest to have an equal rights amendment. And so um, we didn't get, the, there was a deadline. We, we got the deadline extended, but uh, we didn't make the deadline. Uh, however, there are women and men today who say, no, the, uh, the, the limit for uh, ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment uh, is not one that has to be recognized. And we now have the number of states ratifying that we need. As far as rescission goes, there's no provision in the Constitution for a state rescinding their vote once they voted. So we now have enough votes for the Equal Rights Amendment to pass, and um, they're moving ahead. And Representative Carolyn Maloney is one of our champions in this field, and uh, other prominent leaders, and uh, let's see what happens. It'll be very interesting to see, for sure. Where are we now? Where are we at this moment in time, as you see it, with respect to women's rights? I mean, we've lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's been replaced by Comey Barrett. We saw Hillary's campaign fail for probably a host of reasons, but you can't discount the glass ceiling as it respects her presidential campaign's we still don't have pay equity. We don't have child care in sufficient numbers. There isn't paid family leave. So where are we? I, I know it's safe to say that now change the world. And there are substantial changes. We've gone through many of them, fair housing, fair credit, and all that stuff. But where do you sit at this point as you look at our current time, not so much looking back as we've been talking about, but in our current time, where are we? Well, we obviously uh, need, especially we need more political support. And this, this has to be the effort. And with the midterm elections coming up, I hope everybody will get out the vote and do everything they can to make a change. That is, is terribly important. And, and anyone who says... Well, you you know, you've won all the victories. There's nothing left for me. There's plenty left for all the young people to, to work on today uh, to continue our battle. I have to say, Betty Friedan and I used to say to ourselves, haven't we come so far? Did we ever think we'd come so far so fast? Uh, and, and that's because the cause was long overdue. When you think, you know, tens of thousands of years when women were the chattel, the property of men, uh, in our lifetime, we're now partners. Uh, so we have come a long way. Uh, but, but you're right. Uh, we have to get political power to, to, to move ahead to where we want to be. I think we're beginning to get the industrial power because people see that women make a very important contribution in the industrial world. Uh, and uh, educationally, women are moving ahead because they make a contribution. But politically, that's where we really have to put our energies. Well, I think one of the things that you created, which was an important catalyst for change, was the now Legal Defense and Education Fund. I guess 
modeled after the LDF of the NAACP. But so can you talk about the creation? Why did you think you needed the Legal Defense and Education Fund? What were they involved in? What was their litigation strategy? Well, in 1970, Dave Ferdinand said to me, we've got to have uh, an LDEF just like the, uh, the, the civil rights movement has an LDEF. And so we founded it, and this meant we could also get tax-deductible tax money, uh, and, and we could fight legal battles. And uh, we won many important battles. Uh, the organization is still very active. It's now called Legal Momentum. I don't like that name change, but uh, one of the reasons was because some people thought uh, being part of now uh, was helpful. Others thought it was not helpful. Uh, but we got the Violence Against Women Act passed. That's through the now Legal Defense and Education Fund. Uh, we, we, we fought a lot of legal battles and we're still fighting. And, uh, and to get women into, uh, non-traditional jobs. This was a very successful battle of what is now called legal momentum. Uh, Legal Defense and Education Fund, Legal Momentum, created the Muriel Fox Award, a Foxy, is it not called colloquially for communications leadership toward a just society? You were the first. <laughs> You've you really were... done your homework. My, yes, I'm very proud of that. So talk a little bit about it. How has it progressed since your being the inaugural recipient? Well, we, we, we uh, actually, we, we gave awards to a number of CEOs of corporations that had proved that they succeeded better with women in better positions and moving women up the ladder. So we, we had one uh, award after another. We also awarded Sally Ride uh, our award uh, for, for her leadership. And, uh, and, and this is, is still a matter of trying to inspire people and, and to prove that we're, we're, we're not enemies. We are partners in, in working uh, for, for, for a better world and that we all succeed. I have to criticize you on one little thing, Michael, and that is you, you at the beginning, you said National Organization of Women. We, Betty Friedan insisted we are the National Organization for Women because we are an organization of women and men. Well, I apologize for my mistake. It's not the first one I've made, and it won't be the last, but it's an important correction. For women is much better than of women. And that, that goes along with the statement of purpose, which is this was for women to acquire equality in our society. One other award, I know you're a modest person, but one other award besides this, Muriel Fox Award, which I'd like you to talk about, is New York State's Eleanor Roosevelt Award, which you received as well. Well, I'm very proud uh, of having received that award. And uh, I remember when I was that United Press reporter, I got to interview Eleanor Roosevelt. And of course, she was a, a great role model for all of us. But, but, you know, again, it's interesting because she, she did so much and yet she could only do uh, so much as, as a wife. And, and she was also hated 
as a very uppity woman. And when we think how, how the insults that were hurled at Eleanor Roosevelt, and yet she succeeded and she inspired us all. But it shows us that there are obstacles and, and uh, we still have to fight for them and we still have to fight against the obstacles. I remember Bella Abzug, all the criticism of her as, as a pushy woman, an uppity woman. And, uh, but we have to stick to our guns and uh, keep fighting. What would you like your legacy to be? I read something where Terry O'Neill, president of NOW, in bestowing on you the NOW Woman of Vision Award, he said of you that you had a remarkable vision of what was possible and a commitment, and I would add wherewithal, to carry it out. That's a pretty nice, it's a nice legacy. Beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I, th- I think my legacy was that I was the communicator who told the media of the world about this new women's movement. And uh, look how far we've come. And I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that. And we still have to communicate. I have to say, right now, I am embarrassed and how much harm bad communications can do. But we have to remember that good communications, telling the facts and inspiring people can can still make a good difference also. Well, and we talked about this at the beginning, how impressive your communication strategy was as you were standing up now and how that set the tone and created the, the picture of a very serious organization with serious goals that had it in turn be taken seriously. That was very effective. So Thank you. So last question for you, which is, as you, I asked you the question a minute ago, where are we now? And you say, we're still in the fire. We're still in the, in the, in the, in the thick of it. But as you look back, are you in awe of, how you changed the world? I mean, isn't it stunning? Yeah, you're right. I am in awe. It, I mean, just, just think in our lifetime, uh, uh, the difference that we made. And, and luckily, this has been true in rights uh, for minorities, rights for uh, LBTQ people, rights for so many, rights for the disabled. In our lifetime, we have made a difference. And, and again, women are 50% of the population of the world. And so we have changed the, the world for women. And I am in awe of what we have all accomplished together. Well, I can say in summation that I am in awe of you. Uh, I think your career has been just a picture-perfect career of grasping an idea from theory to execution uh, to success. And I'm very grateful to have you on my show and for you to have taken the time to speak with me. Muriel Fox, you're an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.